The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Suddenly, in 1940, I began to be buffeted from side to side. My first thought was that the machine had a mechanical defect or a part had worn out. The last time I had stopped was in 1917, 23 years ago. And the war with Germany was still waging. Now in the air with flying machines. Then I realized the truth of the matter. This was a new war. Uh, I decided to push on into time and see the outcome of this. London. It's Thursday, November 12, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with <laughs> you till, till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. <laughs> Fade into colour and colour into black and white Under the bedclothes and good morning and welcome to the show where 519-661-3600 is a number to call. I guess you forgot how long we're going to be here today, eh, Robert? <laughs> From now till noon. <laughs> From now till noon. That's how long we'll be here. And today on today's subject, uh, it's going to be a little uncomfortable for some of us, I know, because especially after all of the, um, the ceremony we've seen over the past couple days, particularly yesterday being Remembrance Day, uh, an annual day set aside to remember those who sacrificed their lives for our freedoms in wars gone by. And tomorrow, inter interestingly enough, November 13 happens to be Friday the 13th, a day on which we, I suppose you could say, celebrate superstitions. And which also happens to be the release um, of the movie 2012, the depiction of the end of the world. I don't know if you know about that, Robert. Heard about it, yeah. Yeah, but it's also a complete superstition. Complete stupid. Yeah. And we'll be examining that again later in the show. So being wedged in between these two days, it was almost impossible not to see the connection between war and superstition and on, on, and on faith and beliefs. And some of the things that we celebrate in war are the very things that cause war, and we want to discuss that today. And, uh, you know, we're taught to believe, um, you know, about why we went to war. All the things we're taught to believe about why we went to war are basically really not true and deeply rooted in superstitious belief and, and a lot of unreality. I discovered from the start that it's a bit difficult to disentangle these t seemingly two separate issues, but nevertheless we'll start by taking a look at the reality of the causes of war in general and not the fantasy of war that we seem to hear about so much in all of its celebrations. So today we are marking, not celebrating, what we're calling well, forgetance day. <laughs> or perhaps uh, worse, maybe denial day. Or maybe at best, ignorance day. A day on which we will resurrect the realities of why we so foolishly allowed so many of our fellow citizens to quote-unquote sacrifice their lives in the name of freedom, when freedom is specifically not what they sacrificed their lives for. And I want to make another state, uh, statement too, and that the case we'll be making today is that we lost the two wars. Like, who won? And um, basically, 
that's the case we're going to make it you know nobody ever dies for freedom or or, or fights for freedom it just doesn't happen it's a, it's a whole new concept freedom and and, and uh, you know a scottish philosopher john mcmurray reminds us the history of mankind is not a quote struggle for freedom but rather a document of mankind's efforts to avoid freedom and avoid responsibility for the false security of the collective state we you know, this is this is um this is Scottish philosopher John McMurray talk, talking now. Quote, We flatter ourselves too much, and I've read this before, when we imagine that we love freedom and strive wholeheartedly towards freedom. On the contrary, there are a few things we fear so much. No doubt we find the idea of freedom most attractive, but the reality is another matter. I see history, says McMurray, in its concrete reality, not as man struggled to win his freedom in a world that frustrates his efforts, but as a record of the twists and evasions by which men seek to escape from freedom in a world which thrusts it remorselessly upon them. And he says, if we aim at security, we aim at the impossible and succeed only in multiplying the occasions of fear and magnifying our need for security. And that was given in a speech by John McMurray out of his book, Conditions of Freedom, and it was a lecture delivered at Queen's University here in Kingston, Ontario, of all places, way back in January 1949, not long after the war. In fact, the values held so highly by Canadians today were the very vices that our soldiers gave their lives to fight. The Canada and United States of today have, especially since the last two world wars, adopted all of the values of the German state that they so feared. Although they already shared many of the fascist values in the first half of the 20th century to begin with. I did a whole show on that, on how, how popular fascism was in early America. You heard that one night too, Robert? Or even anti-Semitism. Oh, oh it's uh, interesting. Now, Germany won the war, and as proof, look at this. Canadians continue to pay income tax levied for the first time in this country for the sole purpose of paying for the war effort against European fascism. Uh, just another word for advanced socialism, by the way. And which has been increased to the point of enslaving Canadians for at least six months of every year, when prior to the war, Canadians paid no income taxes. We have gun control and a disarmament of the citizenry which did not exist before the wars. We are closing rather than opening our borders to those nations closest to us. We see the rise of anti-Semitism on a new scale, unparalleled since the Second World War. The United Nations is a cesspool of war creation and anti-freedom and anti-capitalism, and it routinely passes moral judgments against the most free nations in the world, while routinely ignoring the atrocities of the non-free, non-capitalist nations steeped deep in mysticism, superstition, and in religion. The anti-capitalist green philosophy, which is actually just another religion, whose literal roots can be traced back to Germany, to Hitler, and nationalist fascism, is the ruling philosophy of our governments today, uh, local, provincial, and federal. Canadians today actually define their country on the basis of one of its most disgusting and unsupportable socialist programs, so-called universal health care, which was an axiom of the socialist states that we went to fight. The expansion of the state in both Canada and the U.S. has followed the literal sequence of events that led Europe into war after war after war, and so on and so on. So, in other words, the Canada of today is the Germany of yesterday that our soldiers supposedly sacrificed their lives to prevent from happening. You think I'm overstating it, Robert? Not at all, Bob. I know you've got your own points and you, you brought your own information, which I don't know about yet, but you're going to be talking about that after the break. You've already covered some of them. <laughs> well, maybe, but um, 
So here we are in Afghanistan, you know, trying to sell Afghani's freedom. Uh, you know, and if, and if an Afghani were to ask us, what's freedom in Canada all about? You know, you could uh, say to them, well, you know, in, in Canada you're free. You can, you can sit in your car and idle for up to two minutes before somebody <laughs> comes and punishes you. And, hey, and, and, and if you have a cell phone in your hand, they'll punish you for that if you're driving at the same time. Or if, uh, you know, if you know that it's between 5 and 27 degrees, so you get all these little silly things Can I smoke made. on private property? That plastic water bulbs, all, in getting rid of incandescent light bulbs, the carbon dioxide nonsense. Um, we are not the free country that we were before we went to wars. We lost the wars. And throughout it all, we continue to pay homage to the greatest superstitions ever adopted by mankind. And that's sacrifice and altruism. We celebrate these two destructive superstitions routinely through politics and through superstition, which is, most people call it religion, uh, which I think are the two most irrational and destructive to peace and mutual cooperation, respect, that kind of thing, activities and practices that are direct causes of wars. Moreover, it leads people into believing in perpetual Armageddon, you know, future end-of-the-world scenarios, and that's what we see all the time. We'll be getting more into that end of this, the whole mentality a bit later. But here it is, you know, I just clipped it yesterday. London Free Press, Laurie Goldstein, I just highlighted the words out of his editorial, November 11th, duty, honor, sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the price of our freedom. You know, when people are told that their freedom depends upon sacrifice, and I'm going to totally tear that concept apart later on in the show, why would they want to fight for their freedom if they have to give up a greater value for a lower value, which is what sacrifice is? That's the de definition. And you can't get away from the definition. You cannot get away from its ultimate meaning. That's just one of the rules of epistemology. If it's attached to uh, uh, reality of any sort, you just can't get away from the actual effects of the words that you're using to express your ideals. You know, in some sense, you know, people misuse the word sacrifice. I'm going to be talking about that later. But I don't like the idea of sending our soldiers over anywhere to sacrifice their lives for anything. I prefer to think that they're going over there to win. To win something to come back better. And win something better than we had before. And you know something? That's never happened yet with any of our wars. I remember you can just go down to the States and you'd almost feel like an American citizen. Just go back and forth across the border. Driver's license, student card, anything would work, right? That's, that's a free world. And it used to be like that from Moscow to London. And a man could walk from Moscow right across Europe and touch the Atlantic Ocean without anybody politically bothering him or stopping him. That was before World War I. Mm. And it's just stunning that people have forgotten their past. So every war is a continuation of the last war. We still haven't settled World War I. We haven't settled World War II. And the wars we're in the middle of now are a continuation of those wars. Now, uh, we've got a clip coming up for the next break, and then Robert will give us a... a, 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 a breakdown of just what happened in the last couple of wars. I guess that's where you're going to be going with a lot of your... Uh, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Now, at the opening of the show, you heard a, a clip from the movie The Time Machine, which was made back in the 1960s and was uh, directed by George Powell. You know, you yes, know the director? great movie. Well, he produces several religious and sci-fi Armageddon movies. He's right into that, right? And, uh, by the way, they're a lot of fun to watch, okay? And, uh, but in the movie... Um, the time machine, he inserted his prediction that we would suffer World War III, Armageddon style, um, way back in the mid-1960s when they made the movie. 
Now, this wasn't part of the original book, The Time Machine, but note at the end of the audio excerpt we're about to play um, how even after the man-made Holocaust has been initiated, he still takes the time to, quote, let Mother Nature unleash her fury <laughs> in yet another religious punishment against mankind for his destructive ways. You just can't get away from the green religion, especially if Armageddon is your theme, right? Mm-hmm. It's in everything. It's amazing how you hear it. So uh, we're going to take a break now. We'll hear that clip. And on the other side, Robert, it's going to be interesting to see what you have to say. What was this? Weird sounds all around me. What could it be? My curiosity compelled me to stop. That's the last alert. Hurry, hurry. Listen, this is important. Look. Atomic satellite zeroing in. That's important. Come on. responded with volcanic violence of our own. I believe in preemptive force right now because we live in a dangerous world. It's no longer the sword of Damocles hanging over our head. It's the ICBM of Damocles. Now, does that mean I like war? Of course I don't. That's so simplistic. I hate war like everybody else. I guess I like war about as much as most pro-choice advocates like abortion. It's an unfortunate reality of life. There, if that helps you to get your head around it, don't think of it as a war. Think of it as choosing to abort Saddam Hussein. Welcome back to CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn, and I'm with uh, Robert Metz. And you can call 519-661-3600 to join the conversation. Check us out on the website at chrwradio.com and justrightmedia.org. Correct. Now, Bob, you were before the break talking a lot about why countries might want to go to war as as a, as a whole. I'd like to say a few things about why individuals go to fight. Now, yesterday, we honored the war dead by remembering their courage and their suffering, the risking of their lives. Some might say sacrifice, but that word, as you mentioned earlier, is often used erroneously. Now, why would a young man want to carry a rifle, be shipped overseas to fate, face great hardship, and possibly even death. Why did 60,000 Canadians and 10,000 Newfoundlanders die during World War I? Why did over 40,000 Canadians and Newfoundlanders die in World War II? No, I say Newfoundlanders, of course, because Newfoundland was not part of Canada at the time. Oh, it has nothing to do with the fact that you're from there, right? (laughs) Maybe a little. I always want to get that little dig in there for my hometown. Now, 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 you have a military background yourself, don't you? I was in the reserves for about a year or two, so... So you're not alien... 
as alien to the military as I would be, say. No, it wasn't because <laughs> I wanted to fight. It was because no. I liked blowing up things. Okay, there you go. <laughs> now, today, we like to say that these people fought and died for our freedom. If that is so, then I'd, I would have to say that they died in vain. Canada, before the first two great wars and even the Korean War, was in many respects a much freer country than Canada today. You took the wind out of my sails, Bob. Well, <laughs> you it, took it, a lot it, of my stuff. We're going to gonna say. be saying it again and again in a number of ways. We just agree too much. The point has to, has to be made. Mm. Now, many of us define Canada today in terms a 20 year old Canadian of 1917 or a Canadian of 1939 would not understand. And if they did understand it, I think they'd probably be shocked. Today you'll hear the CBC sycophants say Canada is a country defined by its multiculturalism, its social programs, its universal health care, official bilingualism, even perhaps such trivial things like the CBC. We have to remember that before the Second World War, none of our current social programs existed. Unemployment insurance introduced in 1940. Old age security. Not, not in Germany, though. <laughs> oh, no, no. A lot of these existed in, in 1870. Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Old age security here in Canada, 1952. Canada Pension Plan, 1966. OHIP, 1972. Child Care Benefit, just a couple of years ago, 2007. So it stands the reason that none of these existed before the First World War. In fact, as you said before, the First World War, we didn't even have an income tax or the CBC. Now, did, fact, did, did you mention anything there about what Germany had in place? No. Oh, just, just to contrast what oh, you yeah, just said let, there. Let in 1885, Germany introduced the first socialized medicine system under the, under the Kaiser Otto von Bismarck. In addition to socialized medicine, Germany instituted workers' compensation, a government-run and financed education system, old-age pensions, an environmental movement, which was the Volk movement, okay? And it was Volkish. And in many respects, the Canada of today is the Germany of 1939. We sent our troops to fight, minus the military buildup, of course, but um, despite our dwindling military, Canada still operates on a wartime budget, plus, 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 just to keep all these social programs going. And, of course, in Germany, it was its spending that got it into trouble and bankrupt the nation and forced them to start killing and murdering Jews to rob them of their property to right. pay for the national debt. And I'll leave you, carry on there. That's just to contrast what we were fighting oh, versus yeah. what we are today. Yeah, excellent. Um, I, I have to correct you on one thing, though. Mm -hmm. It's a minor correction: is that we didn't actually introduce the income tax until after we were in the world first World War for three years. We entered, fair enough. Fair we enough, entered yeah. in 1914, and we but resisted. still for the purpose of the war. Oh yes, yes. We resisted imposing an income tax on our Canadian citizens until 1917, and it's still there today. Mm -hmm. um, and if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the freedom that these people fought for. Uh, it was for the right to live in a country where the governments did not take over half of what they earned. If it was for freedom, then it was for the right to be able to speak out against religious and ideological beliefs that threaten world peace. Something that will put you before a kangaroo court called a human rights tribunal today. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> if they fought for freedom, it was for the right to choose any doctor you wish without having to wait in a queue. Something only our pets can take for granted today. 
<laughs> it's true. You know, you can take your pet or dog anywhere, any anytime, get any kind of medical care, pay for it, and boom, you're done. Yeah. And if you're a human, forget it. Well, Wait in line. Stand in line. We got a system. Got to protect right. the system. If they died for freedom, then it was for the freedom to work and to save for your retirement without having to rely on government handouts in your old age. If they fought for freedom, then it was for the right to live in a safe community where criminals were dealt with appropriately. Remember Toronto the Good, Bob? Well, yeah. If our veterans fought for freedom, they lost the war. That is, if they fought for freedom at all. Like you say, before the f two world wars, Canada's foreign policies were decided by England. It seemed only natural at the time then, when England chose to go to war, that Canada only followed like a dutiful child. Most of the veterans fought because of a sense of patriotism. Not to Canada but to the queen, mm -hmm. or the king in that, that case. Which was our subject last week, by right, the way. Right, yeah. The monarchy. Not necessarily the best thing to fight for, since the other nation has just as many patriots too. <laughs> so patriotism isn't a really good reason to fight. Not to, not to say the least of which, their soldiers are sacrificing and doing all those wonderful things that we're, we're honoring mm -hmm. over here. Well, so, God is on so our how, side, yeah. wasn't it? Or so, no, uh, God is on their side. Well, <laughs> when they're doing the sacrificing right. and on our side, when we're doing the sacrificing, it's all... Uh, it reminds me of that uh, movie where they threw people into the volcano as sacrifices. <laughs> you know? Oh, boy, I'll tell you. But, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt there. Not at all. We should remember that there was a great opposition to the war from the French-speaking Canadians here in, in Canada as well. And don't forget the fact that we had to conscript 125,000 Canadians to fight overseas, 25,000 of these being sent to the front. So when we, we, when we remember the dead of the Great War, we must never forget we sent thousands to die who did not want to fight for England. We must also remember that Canadians entered the Second World War unaware of the atrocities that Hitler was about to perform on millions of Jews. Yeah, we tend to look at the war in retrospect, in retrospect. as though we went there to stop that because we knew about it in advance and we knew nothing about it. Nothing no. about it. As a matter of fact... In fact, we were turning back Jews. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Canada had its own anti-Semites in government. And don't forget our Japanese internment camps. Mm -hmm. And of course, we must remember that we still needed to enslave over 12,000 conscriptees to fight the Second World War. I'd like to think that the tens of thousands who died in Europe for Canada did so, not as a sacrifice, but because they knew they might lose their lives for something of greater value, a free and a peaceful country. I'd like to think that. If we consider, the fact is we really don't know why so many died, since we obviously haven't learned much of a lesson from the wars and seem to grow, continue down the path away from freedom we thought they fought for. If we consider why Canadians are fighting in Afghanistan, though, Bob, I think we have to look at things very much differently. We have a highly educated volunteer armed forces, the way it should be. For the most part, today's soldiers are career professionals and are fighting not out of blind patriotism, but out of a clear understanding of which country is right and which country is wrong. Afghanistan was, when we first invaded, explicitly implicated in the training of terrorists and harboring Osama bin Laden. That country under the Taliban had no right to exist, and we were quite right to overthrow them. It was definitely in our best interests to do so. Now, what Canada is still doing there is a topic for another day, Bob. <laughs> yeah, because, again, you know, war is a war you know now we're going there we're, we're rebuilding the nation and that kind of stuff i think i wonder if that's an uh, um 
uh, a throwback from the mistake we, that was made in Europe uh, between the two world wars, where we kind of backed off and left everybody defend for themselves, and then the war started again. Because, that was a, yes. And then after World War II, the United States yes established permanent bases. And as I remember saying to Jim Chapman on uh, Left, Right, and Center way back when, right during the first week that we were, or we, um, the United States was invading Iraq, I said, if they want to change that culture or do anything, they've got to stay there permanently, yeah. at least 100 years. We're still in Japan. We're still and, in Germany. Of course. Yeah. By the and way, it, Bob, there's, there was a little yeah. thing I found out when I'm looking up World War I. And uh, it was really interesting because it goes right into the flu virus that we're oh. experiencing today. Yeah, the hoax that we're experiencing today. Yeah. <laughs> Not many know that there's a link between the two world wars and the flu virus, the H1N1. In World War I, over 15 million died in the war. But over 50 to 100 million died from the H1N1, the Spanish flu, which was an H1N1 variant of the, of the influenza A. It's funny that nobody has mentioned that and all the promotions of it. And, yeah. You know. It's a, yeah, it's a pretty virulent virus. Right. <laughs> Redundant. But anyway, you know that a million Germans, a million German soldiers in World War I had, was, was struck down, not dead necessarily, but struck down by the H1N1 virus. And so they retreated. They had an orderly retreat back to Germany. And that effectively ended the war, by the way. And, uh, but Hindenburg, not wanting to admit that his soldiers were unfit for soldiering, blamed his loss on the Jews. The socialists and the Bolsheviks, he created what was called at the time a stab-in-the-back legend, claiming that the unpatriotic sabotage by the Jews led to the loss of the war. This legend, by the way, Bob, was widely believed in Germany and picked up by Adolf Hitler. You know, the rest, as they say, is history. Yes, and speaking of history, uh, you know, I dug out my 1950s uh, World Reference Encyclopedia, which was printed in the early 1950s, and it has a huge section on World War I and II. But the thing I wanted to look at is what did it say about what were the causes of the war? Very fascinating. And I just wanted to bounce that off you very quickly. Causes of the war. It says, and I'm quoting from the encyclopedia here. It says, no two persons or governments agree on the causes, but the immediate incentive was the assassination of the Austrian heir apparent, Archduke Ferdinand and his wife's at Sarajevo, capital of Bosnia, June, 18, or June 28, 1914. Now it points out that this event was simply the culmination of a long series of complex events stretching far back into European history. Chief among these were, and they list them here, one, clashing interests arising from the growth of nationalism. Two, a belief, note, belief, in the pursuit of power politics, the development of military alliances, and a race for armaments. Three, economic rivalry which sharpened hostility. The basic idea behind these is that war is a legitimate instrument of national policy. People didn't think twice about it. Going to war, yeah, you got to do something there. You got to force the natives to do this, that, or the other thing. As a matter of fact, you know that uh, Gavrilo uh, Princip, the guy who actually uh, assassinated Archduke Ferdinand and his wife, yeah. his dying words were at least attributed what to his, his dying again? words. Uh, Gavrilo Princip. Oh, I hope I'm it. pronouncing it mm -hmm. correctly. I don't know. As his quote, he's quoted as his dying words as, if I had not done it, the Germans would have found another excuse. Of course. And it's quite true. It's totally true. And when I hear people say that that was the cause of the war or, or this little <laughs> event was the cause of a war, 
That is complete ignorance talking. Mm -hmm. Complete, complete, unmitigated ignorance talking because wars don't just happen out of a single incident. Listen to what the encyclopedia says. It says, thus most of the powers not only planned war, but also desired it in order to achieve or maintain great power status. All of them. The United States was in the same frame of mind, although it ha had restrictions because it was still a freer nation and had constitutional restrictions. Mm -hmm. It prevented them all from going nuts. And... Um, but that was the governing ideal, says the encyclopedia, and the direction taken by all policy of all countries. So there you go. You know, when the United and, States actually, they sunk the Lusitania, mm -hmm. the United States responded by, that's just simply an act of piracy. We're not going to be jumping in the war over an act of piracy. No, they, they tried to keep out of it as much as oh, they as could. Oh, as much as possible, yes. yes. Isolationists. And it, it says here, you know, the idea that uh, war should be outlawed had not as yet made much headway among the world statesmen. And now World War II, it says in terms of the causes of the war, it says in its origins and implications, the Second World War, which began on September 139, was a continuation <laughs> of World War I, of course. And it says it has been said that the United States won the war but lost the peace because they failed to establish in 1990 and after a world comparatively free of injustice and aggression. The problem of Germany in particular remained unsolved. No real support was given by Britain and France to the democratic and peaceful Weimar Republic of Germany and the humiliation plaguing the Berlin government in its international dealings throughout the 1920s furnished an excuse for many of the communist and Nazi groups in the Reich. And of course the rest is basically history. You can go into Versailles, you can go into all the dominoes of what caused the war. Of course, now, Bob, that's and, also a reason, I think, why we're still in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, because they think that the, they don't want to do the same uh, make that thing same after mistake. the Treaty of Versailles, of just leaving the, the defeated country alone. They want to go in there and uh, help them. Although, by, although by no means can we always draw the conclusion that because X was the proper thing to do then, that exactly. it's still the, same, the proper thing to do today. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it, basically... You know, the dominoes just began to fall, and the historical details, and, you know, the whole thing is a fundamental belief in the state uber alles. That's basically what causes all wars. It's interesting, in her, in her essay, The Roots of War, Ayn, Ayn Rand reminds us that she says, quote, Remember that private citizens, whether rich or poor, whether businessmen or workers, have no power to start a war. That power is the exclusive prerogative of a government. And then she points to the phenomenon of the so-called peace movements. And she says, you know, they're all liberal leftist movements. And she points to the irony that, quote, yet it is not a limited government that today's peace lovers are advocating, end quote. While noting that America was led into both world wars by liberal leftist governments, while conservatives and big business interests were openly opposed to entering the war. Quote, just as President Wilson, a liberal reformer, led the United States into World War I to make the world safe for democracy, quote-unquote, so Franklin D. Roosevelt, another liberal reformer, led the world into World War, or led the country into World War II in the name of the four freedoms. In both cases, the conservatives and the big business interests were overwhelmingly opposed to war, which is a total contrary to what people think, but were silenced. In the case of World War II, they were smeared as isolationists and reactionaries and America firsters. And, concludes Rand, World War I led not to democracy, but to the creation of three dictatorships, Soviet Russia, Fascist Italy, Nazi Germany. 
World War II led not to four freedoms, but to the surrender of one-third of the world's population into communist slavery. If peace were the goal of today's intellectuals, a failure of that magnitude and the evidence of unspeakable suffering on so large a scale, you'd think, she says, would make them pause and check their status premises. Instead, blind to everything but their hatred for capitalism, they are now asserting that poverty breeds wars and justifying war by sympathizing with a material greed of that kind. But what breeds poverty? If you look at the world today and if you look back at history, you'll see the answer. The degree of a country's freedom is the degree of its prosperity, end quote. So there you go, eh? That's Ayn Rand on uh, speaking about uh, just the cause of war. So we're at the bottom of the hour, or yeah, we are, bottom of half hour. We've got to take a quick break. Now, this next clip you're going to hear, Robert, I, I, I found this totally by accident on an old, old videotape that I was looking for other stuff on, and it was just a chunk of a news clipping that was sitting there. And I can't give you the exact date. I know it's a news clipping from City TV. Uh, I know it's in 1993. It's obviously before we invaded Iraq. And here are the city TV crews going out in the streets to get public opinion on whether we should invade Iraq. And here is how it goes. And we'll be back after these. So do you think war with Iraq can still be avoided? Our cameras hit the streets to get your take. At this point, I really don't think it can be avoided, even though the American administrators have said that they are in the last stages of diplomacy. I think they've already decided going to attack definitely think war with Iraq can be avoided. Number one, some of the major European powers are uh, right now opposed to the U.S. going to war, so that by itself is hindering the U.S. Do I think it should be avoided? No, I think Saddam Hussein is a tyrant, a murderer, and a despicable human being. He's right up there with Hitler and Pol Pot and all kinds of other despicable human beings. And I think uh, there's going to be lots of misery suffered Just right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where neither I nor my co-host Robert Vaughn are the Messiah. <laughs> Just to make sure that that's clear. However, some people seem to believe in that whole concept. You know, Mussolini said it is faith that moves mountains, not reason. Talk about wrong. You ever see faith build a computer? <laughs> you ever see filth, faith build, <laughs> faith build a, an automobile or any kind of tool that could move a mountain? I don't think so. Um, you know, in the past, when, when faith was used to, quote, move mountains and build things, it was through slavery. 
and through the state, you know, building supposedly pyramids and things like that. You know, that's the kind of mountains they were moving with faith. Adolf Hitler said, for the masses, faith is often the sole foundation of moral attitude. And uh, Leonard Peikoff, in his ominous book, Ominous Parallels, notes that Tertullian, one of the church fathers, had explained that religion, by its nature, requires the active subversion of reason, the belief in the irrational because it is irrational. And on faith and pragmatism, I spoke a great length on a past broadcast of Just Right, and I don't want to repeat all of those issues. But I had an interesting discussion with a friend of mine yesterday who pointed out to me that when most people use the word sacrifice, as we were talking about before, and which is one of the biggest things demanded by religion and state, um, they don't mean it the way Ayn Rand defined it, giving up a greater value for a lesser value. You know, they mean it to mean something else. Most people, you see, said, you know, they see their sacrifices as a, me- as a means to a greater good or, or a gain. And to which I responded, I said, well, then it's not a sacrifice. And they're being dishonest about their intentions or objectives. It's just as simple as that. You can't call that a sacrifice. But whether you agree with Rand's definition or not, it is a fact And sacrifice can in no way be associated with gain or virtue because that's just not the definition of the word by any stretch of that word. I took up my funk and wagnalls and I just couldn't believe what I read there. Now, think, think of all the people on every Remembrance Day paying homage to this if they actually saw the definition of it. Just before you get into that, Bob, remember at the beginning of the show you played a clip from War of the Worlds. Remember at the end of that movie they asked the question because he took some books with him into the future. Yes. He says, what books would you take? I'd take a dictionary. Oh, absolutely. What did he take? He took the Bible. That was unknown. I think think they left that as some... (laughs) Remember, that's George Powell directed that movie. That's correct. (laughs) But uh, Funk and Wagnalls, definition of sacrifice, and there's four of them here. One, the act of making an offering to a deity in worship or atonement, also that which is offered. So I guess he could correctly say that when someone's given their life, they've sacrificed it. But it's not as an offering, it's, it's a loss. Uh, a second definition, a giving up of some cherished or desired object, person, idea, etc., usually for the sake of something else. Also that which is so given up. So you're giving something up. It always represents a loss. Three, a loss incurred or suffered without return. That's a definition of sacrifice. Four, a reduction of price. This is an economic definition that leaves little or no profit and involves loss. Same idea. Same idea. The word actually originates from the Latin sacer, meaning sacred, which is very religious, and facere, if I'm pronouncing it right, to perform, to perform a sacred act. That is what sacrifice is. It's a completely religious concept. It's brought into... Remember, religion and state are one and the same. All our religions today were started as by leaders of states, all of them. They were either militarists or... Even Christianity. Yeah, Constantine, Pope Constantine started the Catholic Church in 325 AD, such as we know it today. Uh, Council of Nicaea did a whole show on that. So you can see where uh, we've... This is what Ayn Rand always meant when she said that our society has completely inverted morality, completely turned it upside down. And if we keep talking about sacrifice and duty and all those kinds of things instead of reason and what is right and that kind of stuff, we're going to keep going to wars and never get ourselves out of them. You know, it's not sacrifice that we should be honoring. We should be uh, 
sacrifice is not an end in and of itself, let's put it that way. And it shouldn't be regarded as a higher moral value. And I think that's one of the dangers of celebrating a Remembrance Day that is focused on sacrifice. And that's why I get so upset when I see all that stuff all the time. I think if we were being rational about it, it would be the refusal to sacrifice of our soldiers that we should really be remembering and celebrating. And, you know, self-sacrifice, and this is, again has to be said, was the single most quality that Adolf Hitler most admired in the so-called superior Aryan. And I've read this on the show before. This was way back a long time ago I got into this. And, uh, you know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, they were the ultimate altruists. People think that, you know, they were this evil empire kind of thing. That's how it eventually ended up, and all altruistic systems do in some way, shape, or form because the altruism is always done at someone else's expense. And it is for this reason alone that Hitler regarded the Aryan as a so-called superman, or as we might say today, the white supremacist, okay? And I think the laughable irony of all this, and I've said this before too, is that to Hitler, the so-called superior or superiority of the Aryan was not about intelligence or about his physical strength or value or virtue, but about the altruistic ethics that were displayed by the Aryan. And this is in his own words, quoted from his famous Mein Kampf, infamous Mein Kampf, I guess, which stands for my struggle. Here's what Hitler actually admired in the Aryan. Quote, This self-sacrificing will to give one's personal labor and, if necessary, one's own life for others is most strongly developed in the Aryan. The Aryan is not greatest in his mental qualities as such, so there goes that out the window. He doesn't think that they're any smarter than anybody else, right? But in the extent of his willingness to put all his abilities in the service of the community. Total communist attitude there. That's the socialist attitude. And Hitler was a socialist, by the way. The basic attitude from which such fulfillment of duty arises, we call, says Hitler, to distinguish it from egoism and selfishness, idealism. So that's the ideal, is self-sacrifice. But we understand... Uh, well, sorry, by this, we understand only the individual's capacity to make sacrifices for the community and for his fellow men, end quote. That's Adolf Hitler in his own words. And so, you know, when you see, if that's the definition of the word, I, let's change the damn word, you know? You could just take out that word Aryan in there, quote that to anybody on the street, and they think that um, that could be somebody f- from our own city council or or MP or, or church leader saying the exact same things. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, Dr. Peacock in his essay, Altruism, Pragmatism, and Brutality, interesting combination there, he wrote that, quote, the Nazis accept the doctrine that the group is not only the proper beneficiary of man's actions, but also the creator of morality. So from, and that's sort of the morality we've adopted today too, the, the, the group mentality, the group rights, group moralities. And, and he Social writes... Social metaphysics. Yes. And he writes that the Nazi holds that ethical ideas, like all others, are devoid of objectivity. And as a consequence, there are no moral absolutes. Morality is flexible, adaptive, and relative. And just like they teach in our public school system Emmanuel today. Kent. Exactly. So... You can see how religion has affected the world, and here's one guy who really had some very strong opinions on the subjects, and that's Bill Mayer coming up in this next clip from his movie Religulous, which got him in a lot of trouble, and we'll be talking about that sometime in the future. And on the, time, on the other side of the break, we're going to be getting a little lighter, but uh, still on the silly side, talking about future ends of the world and why people think another war is coming or something's coming like that, and uh, we'll be talking about that right after this break.
plain fact is, religion must die for mankind to live. The hour is getting very late to be able to indulge in having key decisions made by religious people, by irrationalists, by those who would steer the ship of state, not by a compass, but by the equivalent of reading the entrails of a chicken. George Bush prayed a lot about Iraq, but he didn't learn a lot about it. I don't know much about politics, but I'll vote for President Bush because of his faith. Faith means making a virtue out of not thinking. It's nothing to brag about. And those who preach faith and enable and elevate it are our intellectual slaveholders, keeping mankind in a bondage to fantasy and nonsense that has spawned and justified so much lunacy and destruction. Religion is dangerous because it allows human beings who don't have all the answers to think that they do. Most people would think it's wonderful when someone says, I'm willing, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Except that since there are no gods actually talking to us, that void is filled in by people with their own corruptions and limitations and agendas. It's going to happen, and uh, uh, I'm not saying necessarily nuclear. The Lord didn't say nuclear, but I do believe it'll be something like that. So you think Jesus will end this earth at some point, maybe in your lifetime? One always hopes. Right. This is a sign, and that is a but sign. But I mean, if a nuclear bomb went off, and it seemed like that was exactly what it had said, balls of fire or something, you wouldn't look on that as necessarily a bad thing. I know I'll be with God. This is why rational people, anti-religionists, must end their timidity and come out of the closet and assert themselves. And those who consider themselves only moderately religious really need to look in the mirror and realize that the solace and comfort that religion brings you actually comes at a terrible price. It says in the last days there'll be wars, rumors of wars. The Bible prophecies from the book of Revelation, they are going to be fulfilled. Can this be accomplished without violence? No. Islam ruling the world, global jihad. Who will win out? We'll win. That's for God to decide on Judgment Day. If the world does come to an end here or wherever, or if it limps into the future, decimated by the effects of a religion-inspired nuclear terrorism, let's remember what the real problem was. That we learned how to precipitate mass death before we got past the neurological disorder of wishing for it. That's it. Grow up or die. It's in the news every day. Frightening madmen and terrifying threats suggesting the end of the world is just around the corner. So pervasive is this message of mass destruction, it's given birth to a cottage industry of the apocalypse. And there are many salesmen. I have three prime pieces of advice. Number one is get out of the city. It's going to be a conflict to end all conflicts. Number two is get out of the cities. As much as uh, the 60 to 80 percent of all of Earth will be destroyed. Number three is get out of the city. We hear these prophets working all the time. We see them on television. We read their books. They're never called to task when they're wrong. And they're wrong, wrong, wrong all the time. Damn straight, Randy. We're all still here. 
and something tells me we ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Here's a list compiled by Randy. When the world was going to end and who predicted it. It's a lot of misses. Didn't end in 1665 or 1704 or 1736 when Bill was wrong. Nope. But the next guy could be right, couldn't he? He could be. Could have been 1881. Could have been 1947. Could have been 1988. 1980s. Nostradamus said 1999. These end of the world hysterics have convinced many that it's time to cash in their chips and head for the hills. And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you for another maybe five minutes or so before <laughs> we get to the top of the hour. Uh, you know, 2012 and the end of the world, or maybe we should be talking about 2010, the year we make contact, or 1999 uh, and the end of the world, or 2000 and Y2K, and all those silly things that we've seen go by the way just recently. And, you know, a lot of people are predicting a future war, which is sort of predictable given the direction we're taking. And, and if you look at the facts and the philosophies that we're all practicing, the only inevitable outcome of that is some kind of conflict somewhere down the line, but nobody can really say exactly what shape it will take. And so I think a lot of people sense it in their own, you know, emotional ways. They, they pick up on this kind of stuff. And I have to say, though, the emergence of more outspoken people on the side of reason and rationality, even though I don't agree with them on a lot of other things, like Bill Mayer, I think it's an, it's an encouraging trend. And to reject faith in the supernatural as a rationalization for one's actions, I think, is absolutely necessary if we want to live in a free society. Um, to the extent that any religion has allowed and freedom, you know, any, any sort of freedom of expression or of action, it's important to note that that freedom always resulted as a departure from the doctrine of the original religion and by those people who practice it, not from the quality of the religious you know, doctrine itself, right, which remains unchanged. Remember Stevie Wonder, he had a song, uh, you know, um, very superstitious. When you believe in something you don't understand, superstition takes command, right? It's obvious. And that's what happens. And that's what religion's all about. It's about not understanding things and making it up to, to sort of fill in the vacuum that the mind needs. Ignorance. Now, speaking about this, I guess tomorrow is Friday the 13th. They're going to open up a movie, Robert, called 2012. You heard about it? I have, yeah. And I've got a, a clip here by out of the National Post. This is by Chris Knight on movies, okay? And he, he sort of says the same thing that we just heard Penn and Teller say about the end of the world. You know, he's talking about all the, the, the future apocalypses that have been predicted that never happened. And he talks about how they've long bedeviled filmmakers. And he talks about when James Cameron made Terminator in 1984, he declared Judgment Day and the rise of an intelligent, lethally grumpy machines to be only 13 years out, 1997. Well, we're already past all of that. And each sequel pushed the, the, the future dates more forward, right? Other directors, he said, had similar spotty records when it comes to prognostication. Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, which premiered on December 27, 95, gave us less than a year to go with the civilization best before date <laughs> of December 13, 1996. And he goes, with few notable exceptions, however... The adaptations of Frank Herbert's Dune, which goes all the way up to A.D. 21,266. Or H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which goes up to A.D. 802,701. Filmmakers like to keep things close. Well, we've already proven him wrong on that point because we just heard the clip from the film version of The Time Machine, which gave a 1965 World War III scenario. 
that never happened, including Mother Nature fighting fighting back too. And uh, he's talking about Neville Shute's nuclear war novel on the beach, which was made in the movie in 1959, and it was set just five years out in 1964. It was all supposed to be over then too. And uh, so now this December 21, 2012, I guess, is the date uh, subject to this movie. I don't really know that much about it. But um, you know where that date comes from? It comes from the Mayan calendar from which uh, the date is drawn and does not end on that day any more than the Georgian calendar ended on December 31st, 1999. 2012 merely marks the end of the 13th quote-unquote Bakhtun in the Mayan long count calendar. The 14th Bakhtun runs until March 29, 2407, and the Maya had even longer cycles. A Picton lasts about 8,000 years, and the current one ends on October 13th, 4,772. You, know like, you know what that's like, Bob? You know, My day like? planner probably ends at uh, December 31st, <laughs> 2010. If somebody unearthed that, you know, 1,000 years from now, said, oh, you know, his day planner only went up to this date, it's going to end. <laughs> the world must have ended at that time. That was nonsense. Well, no, it's funny, you know, and here, here too, he's got some key dates to watch out for in the future, okay? He says, if you set your watch by the movies, the Earth was already destroyed on October 19th by a solar flare, as predicted in the Nicolas Cage movie, Knowing. Here's some upcoming movie dates to watch for in terms of end of the world. 2010. And now, of course, 2010, we made contact already in 2010, the movie that was the follow-up to 2001. Remember that one? Yes, With, I do. Yeah. And it was a good movie, though. Roy Scheider, yeah. Very good. Um, Pan-alien monolith will convert the planet Jupiter into the star Lucifer. Now, that's interesting, because the other 2010 movie was about the planet Jupiter, too, wasn't it? Well, yeah, that, that was yeah. the whole thing. It was and it was, Arthur, Arthur it was turning novel. into a star. Yes. That was the whole point. That's really weird. And uh, this awesome demonstration of power will have the effect of bringing lasting peace between the United States and the Soviet Union. Hey, there we go. Uh, uh, 2015, on October 21, Marty McFly will arrive from 1985 via Flying DeLorean. <laughs> in theaters that year will be Jaws 19 in 3D, directed by Max, son of Steven Spielberg. According to USA Today, the U.S. president will be a woman, someone named Queen Diana, and will visit Washington, and the Cubs will win the pennant. <laughs> if you know what movies those are all for. And, of course, one more in 2019. In November, humanoid replicants will run amok and have to be chased down and retired by Rick Deckard. The long-range forecast for Los Angeles that month, rainy. That's <laughs> from Blade Runner, I guess. So there you have it. I mean, and of course, Penn and Teller went through just piles of, uh, you know, that list that they created of all the dates that had been predicted where this would happen and that would happen and, and, and all prophecy. The whole concept of prophecy is a very mystical and... Uh, how, how would you put it, you know? it's uh, Irrational. Irrational, that's one way of looking at it. Do you know the future? Uh, you know something, you can predict the future to within certain degrees of reliability, but only based on reason. And on probabilities, and never, probability. never a certainty. And just usually, just a very short time in advance. Like, for example, I know that within seconds, this show is going to that's end. That's true. And you know what? I'm going to prove to you one day on a future show, I've done this, I'm going to prove that nothing is inevitable. Literally prove it mathematically and logically, including death and taxes honest it's it's provable if it has if it has math in it bob just don't talk to me about it <laughs> <laughs> well we're going to leave it there uh, we hope you enjoyed the show today and it didn't take uh, weren't too shocked by what we had to say i know we were going upstream against the thinking of a lot of you but i think it's something we have to think about and we don't want to be sending our people not to fight for freedom because that's the thing that they should be fighting for in wars and protecting 
and expanding. And we'll leave that thought with you as we head out now. Hope you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the, in the right direction. Hey, till then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, think right, and be right back here. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright You only have to watch one UN session It makes you want to prescribe Ritalin to a glacier <laughs> And you know something? Folks, we have to take care of ourselves right now Because there is a competency chasm in this world And it is widening we're getting it better what we do and the rest of the whirling behind, and they're going to hate us more and more for this. We are simultaneously the most hated, loved, feared, and admired nation on this planet. In short, we are Frank Sinatra. 